We're good? We're good to go. If I move around, tell me to come back to the center. All right, page 809 or uh, in your bulletins. Last week, uh, we saw that Matthew introduced us to the beginning of our Lord Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And he described the place where Jesus began his ministry as being a region that was dark. It was in the shadow of death. And in that region, on those people dwelling in that place, it began to be dawn. Light was dawning upon them as Jesus came into this place. And he gave us this summary, if you will, of the initial advance of the gospel in that particular region. And we watched it and we saw it. We saw the the crowds coming up to Jesus as he was preaching and teaching the good news of the kingdom as he was healing all sorts of the diseases of the people. And all of that, that kind of overview that Matthew gave us, this coming in, this advance of the kingdom of God is given to prepare us for that which follows, that which we begin today, namely the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be in here for uh, several months to come as well. Before I read the section I'm going to read for us today, let me just set the stage for us so that we are aware of where we are and of what's taking place. So the preacher, the teacher of the Sermon on the Mount is the king of heaven and earth. He is the great prophet. He's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one of whom Moses spoke in Deuteronomy chapter 18, saying that a prophet will arise like me after me. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we read, I will raise up for them, this is the Lord speaking, a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the father puts the words into the mouth of the son. The son, if you look at verse 2 of this, the son opened his mouth and then began to teach all the will of God. That's the preacher. The hearers of the Sermon on the Mount are primarily, in terms of the intended audience, the early followers of Jesus, particularly the early Jewish followers of Jesus, the disciples who are there. So Jesus takes them up on the mountain, but as we can imagine and as we see takes place here, where Jesus goes, people follow. And so while the sermon is primarily directed to these early followers of Christ, others gather around to hear the words that Jesus is speaking as well, just as we do today. We come to hear these same words as the Lord speaks them now to us through his word. So the setting is a mountain on the outskirts of Galilee. You can think of it as something of a retreat type of setting, an opportunity to get away from the hustle and the bustle of life in the town to allow those who were there to have, if you will, more focused hearing. That's what what the setting is all about. You've got fewer distractions when you're in this setting. Now, I will say this. Most commentators 
uh, do not see a, or they reject some kind of a connection between this mountain setting in which Jesus preaches this Sermon on the Mount and Moses at Mount Sinai, which is clearly a different mountain, and, and Moses on Mount Sinai, and they say it's, it's not just that they both went up on mountains, there's not a parallel actually being made there. Now, I have to tell you, while it's clearly not the same mountain, personally, I just can't help but see parallels between Moses receiving the law of God and communicating the law of God from Mount Sinai and Jesus here on this mountain communicating the law of God from on high as well. Be that as it may, there you go. That's the setting of this. And then finally, the theme of the sermon. Uh, it's going to take us a while to get through the, in a glorious kind of way, to go through the entirety of the sermon. But the theme, as we look at it holistically, is that this is life in the kingdom of heaven on earth. Life in the kingdom of heaven on earth. The kingdom of heaven references have already started in Matthew. Uh, we saw that, right, with John the Baptist, who is preaching uh, the uh, kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' own preaching is summarized in the same way, preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's going to be the case when we go into the Sermon on the Mount as well. So the first and last of the Beatitudes are framed by uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And perhaps for us, most notably, as you go through this and you get to the end of chapter 3, is that great statement that's in there, seek first the kingdom of God. So that's our theme. It's, it's the kingdom of God, and it's the kingdom of heaven lived on earth. So we, we have here heavenly words, true words, the word of God being spoken to us, but it really is about life on earth. It's about life in this world, and it deals with all of the difficulties of life within this world. The idea is, okay, if we're going to be followers of the king, if we're going to be citizens of the kingdom, then here is the ethic of the kingdom that Jesus is going to set forth for us to live. So there you have it. That's what you got. You got the preacher, you've got the hearers, you've got the setting of this and the theme. So let's listen to the word of our Lord as I read for us just the first three of the Beatitudes. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Lord God, thank you for these words. Thank you for... Father, putting the words in the mouth of your son, Jesus, thank you for opening your mouth to speak and to teach these words, Spirit of God. Thank you for the preservation of these words and the inspiration of Matthew to record them for us. Now, help us to hear. 
speak to us. Speak to us as a church, speak to us as families, speak to us as individuals, that we might hear your word and apply it to our lives according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's a question as we get started with this sermon, and it was a question that I've been pondering all week and actually for the last couple of weeks as we've been leading up to the Sermon uh, on the Mount. What's the purpose of this sermon? Not this sermon, but the Sermon on the Mount. What's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? What was Jesus seeking to accomplish here? What, what does he want us to hear and walk away with as we hear him speaking these words. Does he, and there's a couple of ways to think about this, and I'm going I'm to tackle it from a couple of different angles here for a few moments. Does he want us to come away convinced that we can do all of this, and for a moment thinking of all of this, not simply as the ones that I've just read for us, but the entirety of the next, of chapter 5, 6, and 7, that with a little bit more effort we can actually do these things? That's a question. Uh, another question that is a little bit different but kind of relates to it, is this a new thing that Jesus is teaching here? Is this a new ethic that is being presented to us? Or is this an old ethic that perhaps is being amplified for us in this section, but it's something that has heard before? When Jesus preaches this, does he want to convict us? Is the grand point of this sermon to make us feel guilty? In other words, is Jesus doing an exercise in showing to us the futility of our own efforts at righteousness, at our own self-righteousness? Is that, is that being destroyed in that? Because I suspect that all of us can relate, right? If you're familiar at all with the Sermon on the Mount, if you've looked at it, if you've certainly tried to live according to the Sermon on the Mount, all of us know the failure of it, right? All of us know the conviction uh, that, that comes from hearing these words and trying to live them. As I was wrestling through those questions, what came into my mind was the book of Nehemiah. No need to turn there uh, right now. But in the book of Nehemiah, if you recall it, the scribe Ezra is preaching a sermon for the people. And in the sermon, he's extolling and he's reading to them the law of God. And what we read in the text is that all of the people, as they were hearing the law of God expounded by Ezra, began to weep. And they began to cry out because they realized that the, the law was setting such a standard over top of them for holiness that there was just nothing that they could do. There was no way that they could do it. So they were confronted by their inability or by the fact that they hadn't kept the law of God. And then an interesting thing happens. Ezra, Nehemiah, and the other leaders of the people say, wait, 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 stop crying. This actually isn't a day for crying. You, you've got the wrong response to the word being preached. And so the, the, the correction that they give to them on this particular day is that this isn't a day for grieving. They say to them, go and eat and drink wine and share with others for the joy of, your, of the Lord is your strength. 
The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, the point is not that there's no place for weeping, for tears, for mourning in the kingdom of God. If that were the case, then really these beatitudes that are before us today would make no sense at all. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, there's going to be a time of confession and mourning for the people. But I think there is a point that's being made to say, listen, as you, as you look at this sermon, it's the joy of the Lord that is your strength. Your guilt might do a little bit, might help a little bit, might prod you. Uh, poke you in some way as you hear this, but the joy of the Lord is your strength in terms of this word. Now, we can look at how the people who were the first hearers of this reacted to it. That's given to us at the end of chapter 7. In verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7, we read this, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Okay, so, fair enough. We can at least say, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, as we consider these words, these sayings of Jesus, that we can't go wrong by being astonished at the holiness, at the beauty of the words that are being spoken, at the authority with which Jesus speaks them, at the clarity that he gives, at the fact that he can speak them without necessarily referencing what a bunch of other people have said except for the law of God, what it says about them. He speaks with authority. So we can be astonished with that, but clearly that's not enough, right? Clearly the point of Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount is not to wow people with his words so that everybody is just impressed with the way that he speaks with that. There's something intended in the sermon. So what does he want? What does he expect to be the reaction? Is it mourning over our failures? Is it despair because we will never measure up to this. It's an impossible ideal that has been set before us, and instead of being life-giving, it feels like it kills us when we read it. Or is it a joyful and a humble resolve to follow after the words of our King? Or perhaps it's an ancient, if slightly overstated, idyllic response from Israel when they heard the law spoken by Moses, right? You remember what they said in response to that? They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Good response, if a bit uh, higher than they were able to actually attain. Well, what I want to do is, at least to some extent, I want to allow the tension to remain for us. I don't want to try and just answer it in one way, even though I've given at least a trigger with the emphasis on the joy of the Lord being our strength. I want to allow the tension to remain in the sermon so that the sermon itself kind of stops us in our tracks, even though we've heard it before. Something unspeakably beautiful is being spoken before us. And on the one hand, you cannot resist looking and hearing and listening to the one who is speaking it and the way he is speaking it with such authority. 
On the other hand, I cannot help but read this and to some extent be ashamed of myself. Just be ashamed of myself that I hear these things and I've heard these things over and over and I still go, these are the first words of Jesus. I can't get the first words of Jesus right. I can't get this ethic right. And then at the same time, the third hand, on the third hand, I cannot help but be drawn to the king and his kingdom. I can't help but kind of lean in and listen more and say, okay, Lord, I'm gonna, I'll give it another go. And I want to hear more of this. All right, so let's get more specific now. Jesus begins with a series of eight statements, right? They are not presented to us as commands. There's no commands here. It doesn't say be meek. It doesn't say uh, be mournful. uh, Or it doesn't say be poor in spirit. Instead, they're declarations of truth. They're pithy. They are memorable. They're somewhat counterintuitive, to be sure. They're maxims, though. And maxims don't tell us what to do, but somehow they make us want to do them and follow them all the same. In fact, maybe they even want us make us want to follow them sometimes better than a direct command would do, right? And we get this. This is the same way uh, aphorisms are used in normal everyday speech. So uh, if an aphorism is given, a penny saved is a penny earned. There's no command there, right? No one said save a penny um, to do that. Instead, the the aphorism is just stated and it kind of makes you go, okay, I'd like to save, I'd like to save pennies. Well, that's kind of the same thing that's going on here with these words from Jesus. There's no commands uh, given in them, but having said them, there is the implication to go, okay, all right, well, how do I do exactly what that thing is? Now, I've grouped the first three of these together today because of their uh, commonalities, at least their commonalities uh, as I see them and others see them as well. My intention is to do this. There are a couple of these that I will take individually uh, over the next couple of weeks, and then there are weeks and there are a couple of others that I will pair up together. To each of them, to the three that are before us today and to the ones that follow as well, there are clearly three parts to them, right? Three parts to them that are, I think, pretty evident, self-evident as we look at it, but we'll identify them. There's the opening word, blessed, right? Blessed is the way that each of these open. Secondly, there's the quality or the character or the ethic that is being considered. So in our case, what we've got here, the poor in spirit, the mourning, uh, and the meek. And then third is the promise that attends the blessing and the particular quality that is being spoken of. And I'd actually like to start at that today. I'd like to start at this idea of the attending promise of each of these because oftentimes we overlook them. In fact, I suspect that if I said to you just casually in a conversation, what are the Beatitudes? If we just did that as a little quick quiz in Sunday school. I suspect that we would do something like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. And we'd do it just like that, right? And we'd we'd actually truncate the promises that are attached to each one of those. So just because maybe that's only me. If it is only me, fair enough. But that's sometimes the way I think. And because of that, I want to start at the end. I want to start with these three promises. So 
Here are the three promises that are given in the three that are before us this morning. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. Okay, those three. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted and they shall inherit the earth. Now, There are promises, and then there are promises. It's easy for us just to kind of hear those and let those slide by. But think of what those things are actually promising. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Comfort will be yours. You'll inherit the earth. If we can borrow the language that we find in uh, 2 Peter. 2 Peter says of, of things like this, these are exceedingly great and precious promises. Jesus doesn't call us to endure the mourning or endure the meekness uh, or the discomfiture of the world just for endurance's sake. Instead, he piles up promises upon these dispositions so that we might be assured of their worth. The value of the promise bespeaks the worth of that which is actually being extolled. Again, it's not being commanded because it's going to allow us to just jump into that. But the value attached shows us how valuable the thing, the character trait actually is, the attitude actually is. Jesus is instructing us in how to live in his kingdom now. How to live the kingdom heavenly ethic now. But in order to do that, in order to do that, in order to address for us now, he says, you're going to have to look at the end as well. Because if you only look at the now part of the equation, there's no way that you can actually make this make sense. You've got to look at the promise that comes at the end of it, because then that's the only thing that's going to actually give you the proper perspective for what I'm calling you to do now, for what this kingdom ethic looks like in this world. And this is just one of the beginnings of the tensions that we have got to hold, right? We've, we've got to hold this tension. It is a familiar one to us. Jesus can say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am the king. I am here. I am bringing to you and preaching to you the good news of the gospel. I am giving to you the ethic of the kingdom, and I want you to live that now. That's one side. And Jesus can teach us, pray for thy kingdom to come. Realize that these promises, these promises that are here, are beyond the horizon right now. They're there. They're sure. They're guaranteed but they're beyond the horizon right now. So Jesus can teach us to wait for the kingdom, and we need to let that be attention. And you can note here, as you you look at this, perhaps you noticed this already in the way that they're written or the way uh, that I have read them, that the first promise is in the present tense, right? The present tense is there. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next two are future. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. The remainder uh, are also in the future until you get to the last one, uh, which comes back to the very beginning again. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't want to 
push that too hard in terms of the tenses themselves, but it helps us to see that two things are true. That we have a taste, a hearty appetizer of the kingdom now. Of, of the kingdom life set before us now, of the good news at work in our midst now, and there's more to come. And there's more to come with it. This kingdom life cannot be lived now without that perspective. You can't do it. There's no way to do it. And let me just suggest this. This actually isn't new. You go to the Old Testament, if you read Psalm 37, again, that we read, that Nick read for us earlier, or if you look at Psalm 73, that's exactly the perspective that is given there as well. You can't measure everything by the now, because then it doesn't work. You've got to be able to look to that which is to come. All right, so let's now go from, those are the promises, right? The attendant promises. Let's now go to the beginning, to the word blessed. All right, so blessed. In Latin, that's beata, and that's where it was then transferred to beatitudes, uh, and that's where we get this word. It's an adjective that we have. That's why it's so often, and in my Bible, maybe in yours as well, they're called the beatitudes. It's not because somebody thought that, well, we should say be these attitudes. Fair enough, okay, it's out there, but it's, it's a Latin thing that's going on that seemed to work for people in terms of the English as well. And any scholars that look at this word and look at this section try to figure out what are some synonyms, what are some other ways that we can say this. And so they suggest various things. Fortunate are the poor in spirit. Happy are those that mourn privileged or approved or favored. Here's one that, that I, I would go with if I were looking for a different way to say this or to translate this word. I, I think it would be accurate to say, God's favor is upon the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I, 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 I think you could say it in that way, but that's kind of wordy. And blessed is fine. We've got it. That's a, that's a common enough word. We can appreciate the word blessed and understand that. That's where the book of Psalms opens, right? Blessed is the man, same idea, um, same connection that is here. And let, let me tell you what I think part of the at least importance of this is. It is that we must connect this idea of the gospel of the kingdom with what is being spoken by Jesus. This is good news and good news and being blessed go together. They transform the way we live in this world. They, they transform the way you hear this sermon. Because when you look at these things, when you look at the things we're about to consider, they don't seem to be good, right? They don't seem to be happy. They don't seem to be things that are favored, the poor in spirit and mourning and meekness. At least they don't initially seem good until they're kind of re-imaged in view of the kingdom of God. And I'll say this, this too isn't a brand new idea. This, this isn't brand new. Um, a beloved passage of mine is Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I've preached on it before at various points. But it says it's, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. It's a sorrow is better 
than laughter. And you kind of look at that and go, okay, okay, how's that true? Why? Because there are things you can learn. There are accurate things, good truths that you can learn in the place of mourning that you don't understand and you don't learn in the place of laughter. And so this idea here that, wait, there are really good things that come in really hard ways is significant. And, and Jesus is reinforcing it here. And so I, I think this word blessed calls us once again to recalibrate our way of thinking in light of the kingdom of God. It, it allows us to enter into something that is good news. So that, so that whatever else, in whatever way it convicts us, and it surely will, that nevertheless it's framed right at the outside as, I've got blessing. I've got something good to tell you, to exhort you in for your lives. All right, now let's consider these three attitudes of a, a disciple or a citizen in the kingdom, blessed and living in this fallen world. What have we got today? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, many have called this like the, the great news that starts off the Sermon on the Mount. It's the gateway. King David, front of your bulletins, uh, Psalm 86 on the front of your bulletin. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Now, he wasn't financially poor, but he can call himself poor and needy. And in our call to worship from Psalm 34 this morning, he says, this poor man cried out to the Lord. This poor man cried out to the Lord. And the idea here is simply this, that when you come to the Lord, you have to come with nothing in your hands. You come empty-handed to the Lord. You come unclothed before the Lord. And you're utterly and completely dependent upon him alone. We are acknowledging our personal spiritual bankruptcy. We have no claim on God. We come to him empty in order to receive the kingdom. This first one is the gospel of grace that is set before us. You have to come to the Lord poor in spirit. And when you come to the Lord poor in spirit, you receive the kingdom of heaven. You can only come empty if you want to be filled. Years ago, I had a couple who wanted me to marry them, not members of, uh, of a church. Um, and I sat down to talk with them about it and for over an hour, they extolled their own goodness, the goodness of their relationship, the, the reasons why I, they thought I would marry them for all of these things. And I, I, I just was so shocked by it. I was like, if you had just come and said, listen, we got nothing to offer here, we'd like to be married, then I said, yay and amen, let's do it. But it, it, it was just the polar opposite of being poor in spirit. Instead of coming with our hands empty before the Lord and casting ourselves upon them. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, this is right on the verge of being incomprehensible, right? Because it's almost the opposite. And it, it would be incomprehensible without the promise of comfort that is found there. 
There are no tears in heaven, right? There's not somebody in heaven. This isn't a character trait that belongs to heaven itself. There's not somebody sitting in a corner of heaven who just couldn't get over the bad things that happened to them in life and who is stuck in the corner mourning while everybody else is having a good time. There are no tears in heaven, but there are tears on earth. There are tears on earth that are here. And the morning that is here blessed is the morning for sin and for the misery of the world. It can be a personal morning for sin and misery, our own sin and misery. Or it can be a moaning for such a broken world that is out there and that is around us. The biblical teaching is clear, it is unambiguous, that all of the suffering that exists in the world comes from personal or corporate sin. And the blessed person is the one who not only understands that, who can not only say, well, the reason there's so much suffering and pain and misery in the world is because of sin, not that you can always put it in a one-to-one kind of match-up with things, but to say that the reason it's like this is because of sin. The person who's blessed is not just the person who can understand that intellectually. The person who is blessed is the person who feels that in their heart. The ones who are, in fact, those who mourn, those who grieve over it in hope of comfort. This is captured, it was captured in the second hymn and in the opening hymn, both 4,000 tongues as well. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice. The humble, poor believe. Or on the front of your bulletin, Psalm 38, 8, lest we think that the Christian life is happy-clappy and everybody's always doing good things and always just happy. The psalmist writes, I am feeble and crushed, I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Groaning, groaning, tumultuous hearts are part of the Christian life, part of the mourning that is the life of faith. And finally, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To be meek is to be gentle. It is not weakness, but it is a willingness not to insist on one's own rights. Jesus wasn't weak. He was meek, right? He was gentle and lowly in heart. He did not insist on all the rights that he had as the perfect son of God. He didn't have a vengeful spirit. Psalm 37, and we'll not go back to it right now, but Psalm 37 teaches exactly this lesson. You want to know what meekness looks like? Go back to Psalm 37. Jesus is quoting Psalm 37 here. This is not new. Psalm 37 says, the meek shall inherit the land. Jesus is saying the exact same thing. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Actually, he's just saying it with a bigger promise. A bigger promise attached to it. Not just the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan, but the entirety of the earth.
Friends, these are the words of our King. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The uh, third question of the shorter catechism today said to us, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer was, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God. Well, we've got what to believe concerning God here. The promises of God are set before us. The blessings of God are set before us. We can believe a God who has that in mind, who has secured that. What do the scriptures principally teach? What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And the duty is set forth here. The duty is set forth not by way of command, as we've acknowledged, but nevertheless, plain for us. Our king spoke these words. Our king lived these words. And our king calls his followers to follow his example. Like others. Who are the others in scripture that you would think of that are characterized by these words? Uh, The names that came to my mind, Moses, a humble man, Hannah comes to mind, David, poor in spirit, Mary, Ruth going backwards come to mind, Joseph comes to mind as well. They're the kind of people we can look at and say, these these are the evidence. These are the ones, these are the the humble ones, these are the ones who are brokenhearted, who cry out upon the Lord, and the Lord's blessing is upon them as well. Last verse, front of your bulletin is this. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What say you about the state of your own souls as you hear those words spoken? To tremble at the word and to know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Great God in heaven, give us a good, healthy trembling at your word. Let none of us walk out of this place feeling like we've got it all resolved and we've got it all set up in our lives. Lord, you're a great Savior, and you've given to us great instruction, great example, and great power to delight in the kingdom of God now and to hope for the kingdom of God to come. Help us to live accordingly in your name. After your example, we pray. Amen.